Chapter the Twenty Fifth of The Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Retrospective The collarbone was broken, there was no mistake about that, but Jabez, mindful of Mrs. Ashton's protracted anxiety, lingered no longer where he would fain have remained than to see the surgeon prepare under Dr. Hull's supervision, to reduce the fracture, a delicate process, since to the collarbone no splints can be applied. Augusta's affection for her mother overcame her pain. "'You'll be careful how you tell Mamma, Jabez, I know. Do not frighten her more than you can help. She'll be so terribly distressed,' faintly murmured she, as he again departed. With all his haste and care, so much time had been spent, Mrs. Ashton's fears had already conjured up all manner of evils, all, of course, wide of the mark. That something was wrong, she felt assured, and he found her dressing to follow her dilatory messengers. The stoppage of the coach and his evident agitation were confirmatory, but the absolute facts roused as much indignation as grief. Yet Mrs. Ashton never forgot herself and though the waiting coach bore her to Bradshaw Street to add her maternal reproaches to the wrathful utterances of the rough rebukes of Dr. Hull and the prickings of Madame Broadbent's own conscience, the natural dignity of her manner more overawed and impressed the resentful schoolmistress than all which had gone before. She was as profuse in apologies as in extenuating pleas but she was not prepared to combat Mrs. Ashton's proverbial argumentation. "'Facts are stubborn things, madam, and she who cannot govern herself is not fit to govern others.' Neither coach-making nor road-making had reached the acme of perfection, and Augusta's removal home, without the displacement of the bone, had to be considered. A sedan-chair, one of the last in town, was still kept for invalid use behind the infirmary. Jabez was aware of this, and before Dr. Hull could make the suggestion, he had proposed to go for it, and was back with the black brass-nailed sedan long before the doctors thought their patients fit to be removed. As the unfamiliar vehicle waited at the academy door, it attracted the notice not only of neighbours and returning schoolgirls, but of passers-by, until Madame Broadbent was in a fever. The reputation of her school was at stake, and she felt that every extra moment that hand-carriage and wheel-carriage remained standing there, the bruit of the lamentable occurrence was spreading farther afield. There had been no cessation of afternoon school duties, albeit the teachers alone presided, and discipline was somewhat relaxed. But when patient doctors, friends and vehicles had gone their way, and the school was soon after dismissed, the harassed, agitated and prescient disciplinarian surrendered herself to alternate fits of hysteria, passion, lamentation, and overweening assumption. That first outburst over, the self-important dame stood on her right to maintain discipline, even when confronted by Mr. Ashton, no longer the easy-going, pleasant parent of a paying pupil, but the angry father of an injured only child, who had posted from Whaley Bridge on the first intelligence of the mischance, leaving his business incomplete. Not alone to the inmates of the house in Mosley Street was Augusta Ashton precious. Notwithstanding her sometime waywardness, 
the result of her father's overindulgence, she had endeared herself by her affectionate heart and winsome ways to a wide circle of friends. Even Joshua Brooks was less grim with Augusta, so no wonder Jabez was secretly devoted to her heart and soul. Great and general was the sympathy expressed on the occasion. Mrs. Chadwick and Ellen were with Mrs. Ashton before the afternoon was out, and at Augusta's eager desire her cousin remained behind, not only for companionship, but as chief nurse, an office for which Ellen had that peculiar fitness observable in some women, coupled with the deftness and experience gained in long attendance on her father. And now, leaving Augusta in the hands of love and skill, with all that affection and wealth can lavish upon her in furtherance of recovery, let us step backwards to the previous September, when Peterloo was fresh, and Jabez yet wore his left arm in a sling. Whaley Bridge has been mentioned more than once, for in that village, near the high road from Manchester to Buxton, Mr. Ashton possessed a watermill on the picturesque banks of the River Goit, which there divided the counties of Cheshire and Derbyshire. It had been established in the previous century, together with another in the contiguous vale of Taxal, by a speculative ancestor of Mrs. Ashton, whose old hall was in the locality. The two places had been chiefly colonised by his workpeople, many of whom had been pauper apprentices from Manchester and Warrington. Besides the mill, Mr. Ashton owned the White Hart Inn, close to the bridge, where the Buxton coaches stopped, and Carr Cottage, a long, low, rough-cast building, nestling under the shadow of a fine old farmhouse, which crowned the elevated ridge of Yeardsley cum Whaley, Lang Syne the Gothic stone hall of the warlike Yeardsleys. From this farmhouse, Carr Cottage was separated by a retired walk at the back, which, itself a wilderness of nettles, gave access to the cellarage and a clear well, led the adventurer away up the hill between the cottage grounds and the farmer's tall high-banked hedges, which almost overtopped the cottage roof. And on the left of the cottage, as viewed from the high road, spread the granaries, stabling and farmyard, enclosed by remains of the ancient wall, and entered by a step or two through an ancient Gothic doorway, over which ivy and honeysuckle clambered in luxurious rivalry. The cottage, which on each floor contained four capacious rooms in its length, was on the ground divided in the middle by a respectable lobby, the house-place and kitchen lying on the left, the parlours to the right as you entered. There were two staircases, one at each end of the building, the one running upwards in the kitchen itself, the other from a small enclosed space at the back of a parlour, containing also a china closet door, and lit by a low window close to the foot of the staircase, whence it was possible to step out into the garden, unseen by anyone in the house. Otherwise, both chambers and parlours had doors of communication from end to end of the building, the two middle chambers being only accessible through the others. The lower windows in the front, at least those of the large parlours, were brought very close to the ground, and overlooked a charming landscape descending, at first suddenly, from the widespread flower-garden, with its one great sycamore to the right of the cottage for shade, then with a gradual slope to a bean-field below, to a meadow crossed by a narrow rill. Then, after a wider stretch of grass, the alder and hazel fringe of a trout stream, skirting the high-road, on the far side of which tall poplars waved, 
and in autumn shed their leaves in the wider waters of the goit, fresh from the bridge, where the road bends. Rivulets, road and river ran parallel, and from the road a broad wooden gate gave access, over a bridge across the trout stream, to a wide steep avenue between trim hedges, rising to the level of the cottage, in itself as delightful a retreat as any wearied denizen of town could desire. To Mr. Ashton it was necessary as an adjunct to his factory, an occasional home for his family in the summer, a lodge for himself when a visit of inspection was desirable. Hearing that the general discontent was spreading amongst his own workpeople at Whaley Bridge, Mr. Ashton, without waiting for the stagecoach, put himself into a long-skirted drab overcoat with high collar and small double cape, ordered reluctant James to find another for Clegg, and having stowed away a carpet-bag and a case of pistols, lest they should be molested on the road, he mounted his high gig with Jabez by his side, and set off to take the bull by the horns, as Mrs. Ashton had advised. Away they drove through the mild September air, up London Road, where houses had been growing in the years since we scanned it last, and past Ardwick Green Pond, where a dashing young buck, booted and spurred, lounged at the door of the quaint Georgian dragon, and followed them curiously with his eyes, yet not so swiftly, but Jabez had time to recognise with accelerated pulse his former assailant, Lawrence. Longsight, Burnage, Fallowfield left behind, Stockport Bridge gained, they went walking by their horse's head up the steep hill between frowning houses to the pack horse in the market-place where the beast was baited and the travellers dined at the same table jabez not for one moment forgetting the social distance between his master and himself again seated they quickly left the smoke-begrimed higgledy-piggledy mass of brick and mortar called stockport behind and were away on country roads where yellow leaves were blown into their faces, where brown-faced, white-headed cottage-children were stripping blackberries from the wayside brambles, or ripe nuts from the luxuriant hazels, which have since changed the very name of the bullock smithy, through which they drove at a gallop to Hazel Grove. It was a glorious treat for Jabez was that drive, and Mr. Ashton, conversing with him as they went, was surprised to discover his love of nature and his knowledge of her secrets. This induced reminiscences of the early years of Jabez when Simon took him bicker back into the fields on Sundays, and Mr. Ashton led him on to dilate on his childhood among his first friends, until he had a closer insight into the young man's heart than in all the years he had served them. But the object of the journey had not been forgotten, and at Disley, hearing Mr. Ashton remark that they were but three miles from Whaley Bridge, Jabez ventured to suggest— do you not think, sir, as I am unknown in Whaley Bridge, I might make inquiries and ascertain the feeling of the people better if I went on foot, having no apparent connection with you? That's a wise thought of yours, young man. Just so. I will put you down at the next milestone. Here's a guinea for your expenses at the White Hart. But country people are inquisitive. What do you propose to be? Well, sir, I took the liberty to bring a sketch-book with me. I don't get many such opportunities. I could represent myself as an artist, or I could cram my pockets with plants and roots as I went along, and say I was a botanist in search of specimens. Stick to the artist, Jabez. Our country botanists would soon floor you on their own ground. They know more of plants than pencils, I'll warrant. 
and Mr. Ashton, handing the reins to Jabez, took a pinch of snuff on the strength of it. Mr. Ashton, putting up the collar of his top-coat, drove direct to Carr, much to the surprise of his unprepared overlooker and wife who had charge of the cottage. He said nothing of any companion, and Jabez, some twenty minutes later, walked into the bar of the White Hart, dusty and weary, as if with long walking, called for bread and cheese and ale, intimated his intention to remain the night, if he could have a bed, talked of the scenery, and led the host to tell of the best points for sketching. Professing fatigue, he kept his seat in the bar-parlour the remainder of the day. The sling, not yet wholly discarded, drew attention as he expected it would. The incomers, eyeing him askance, talked politics before him, and finding him less glib than themselves, whispered that he was a refugee from Peterloo, and to show their sympathy with the party to which he was supposed to belong, freely discussed the political aspect of the district before him. He was young, free with his money, and they were not reticent. He found that the overlooker had made himself and his master, through himself, obnoxious to his weavers, and that only prompt measures would prevent an outbreak. The next morning Mr. Ashton put his head into the inn, greeted Mr. Clegg as someone he was surprised to meet in so remote a spot, and invited him to Carr Cottage. Jabez accepted the invitation for the afternoon, saying he could not spare the morning. Under pretence of sketching, he took his way by the goit to the neighbourhood of the mill with pencils and sketch-book. Women and children flocked inquisitively round him in their dinner-hour and talked to him. Then he rested in a weaver's cot, and when he found his way to Carr in the afternoon and sat with Mr. Ashton for privacy under the dropping keys of the sycamore, he had brought with him the key to the prevailing discontent. Mr. Ashton listened, took an enormous quantity of snuff, dropped an occasional just so, and knowing the sore, set about healing it. He drove back to Manchester, leaving Jabez as his temporary deputy, high honour for so young a man, and the overlooker was required to render up his accounts. A fortnight later, as Jabez was midway up the avenue to Carr in the afternoon, he turned, hearing the blithe bugle of the coming Buxton coach, and watched its dashing progress along the road. To his astonishment it stopped at the gate. He himself reached the spot at a run. His eyes had not played him false. Simon Clegg, in his best clothes, was there on the box seat. Tom Hume and Bess and little Sim sat close behind him. Mr. Ashton was himself an inside passenger. In the bustle and confusion of alighting and dragging boxes from the boot and from the top, curiosity was kept on the stretch. It was not until the entire party were under the roof of the cottage that Jabez was enlightened. Tom Hume was the new overlooker, Bess the new caretaker of Carr Cottage, which was henceforth their rural rent-free home, and to Simon, long disqualified by rheumatism for the wet and slush of the tannery, was given the charge of the garden, with a boy under him. And of all the group, old Simon and little Sim were most delighted. Some eight months before, Sim, then about two years old, had slipped on the frosty stones in the old Long Millgate yard, and rolling down its rugged declivity, was supposed to have injured his spine, and he had been too delicate ever since to run about freely. To the child, therefore, whose shoulders seemed unnaturally high, 
the change from the stifling court was something too exuberant for expression. To Simon Clegg, who, in losing his crony Matt, had felt the old haunts oppressive, the bountiful expanse of nature before him, and the comfortable fragrant home, were matters for deep thankfulness. "'My lad,' said he to Jabez, when the latter was about to depart with Mr. Ashton, after they were fairly inducted, "'Ah, Bess said thou would be a godsend to us, and thou has been. This paradise of poses has all grown out of thy cradle. God bless thee!' I think, my dear, the experiment will succeed. There is a matronly air of respectability about Mrs. Hume that will help to uphold her husband's position amongst the workpeople, and I can trust his soldierly discipline for keeping the rebellious in order. Thus said Mr. Ashton to his good lady, sitting by the fireside after supper, the night of his return home. Then, after a little pondering and trifling with his snuff-box, he added as if reflectively, it is all very well, my dear, to serve the young man's friends and ourselves at the same time, but I should like to do something for Jabez himself. It is entirely to his clear head and his tact that we owe the preservation of peace at Whaley Bridge. I should like to give him a rise. My dear William, make no more haste than good speed, and never do things in a hurry, replied his calm proverbial philosopher. We must not excite the envy of his fellow clerks, or we shall surround him with enemies from the first. In removing his humble friends, you have cleared one barrier to his advancement. Mr. Ashton did not say, just so, for a wonder. He turned his gold box round and round in his fingers, and at length gave utterance to a thought which took Mrs. Ashton by surprise. If we remove all the young man's old associations, don't you think we ought to provide him with new ones? I think, William... We ought to leave well alone. Smooth paths are slippery paths. The young man will be out of his time in six months. You can then advance him, if you think proper, in the warehouse. But I do not feel disposed to open our drawing-room to him, if that's what you're driving at. And she drew herself up, as if her dignity had received a blow. Well, no, not exactly. And Mr. Ashton, unable to express what he did mean exactly, shuffled and fidgeted till he upset his snuff on the brussels carpet end of chapter the twenty fifth